Well, when I was growing up in Denton, Texas, my childhood home, uh, it was on a long and wide street. The houses weren't that big, but the front yards were. They were really deep with lots of big oak trees. During the summers, I would wait for the mailman to drop off the mail at our house. We were the second house from the corner. Uh, And then I would tail him the rest of the way down the street. Uh, I'd stay a house or so behind him, ducking and dodging behind trees, moving across the street behind houses, ninja rolling across the front lawns. My mission was to follow him and not be seen, making it the entire length of the street. I'm pretty sure he was quite aware of the nine-year-old who was wearing British Knights basketball shoes, creepily following him along, but uh, he probably just humored me. It also gave me something to do in the summer after The Price is Right was over, maybe an episode of Hogan's Heroes or something. It took timing, it took planning, it took forethought, it was important. It was also really silly, but it also gave me a sense of accomplishment. When I reached the end of Houston Place, my street, which dead-ended into Bradley Street, I would high-five myself, you know, uh, it's pretty pathetic, but I had two sisters and there weren't many kids on my street. Uh, but it was my daily mission. Uh, it was an awesome daily mission, which is my awesome transition now into mission. Uh, this week is Missions Emphasis Week, and more specifically, today is Missions Emphasis Sunday. So what do we mean? What do we mean and what are we talking about when we're talking about missions? We tend to think about missions as a short-term, uh, one- or two-week trip to paint or build an orphanage, perhaps even giving money and supporting those really crazy people who might pack up all of their things and move across the ocean to a different country to share the gospel of Christ. Perhaps in our New Mexican context, we think not of missions, but a mission, like a building that the Spanish built to invite the natives to come and hear of the Bible. While all of those are very possibly part of mission by themselves, they're all too reductionistic. Like my mission of tailing the mailman, missions, or our mission, is a task, an ongoing and long-term task which requires timing, planning, and forethought. Missions isn't a place or an annual event. Missions is our entire life. The way we should think of missions is this. The joyful response of God's people when they realize that they are not only the result of God's saving work, but the means through which God continues the expansion of his kingdom. The joyful response of God's people when they realize that they are not only the result of God's saving work, but the means through which God continues the expansion of his kingdom. Together, Clint and I came up with that little definition as we were thinking about God's work to and through his people in Isaiah 54. So this morning, we'll hear from God through the words of Isaiah in three major headings. The plight of God's people, the mission of God to save them, and the mission of God to save through them. So let's read the first half of verse 1 again together. 54 verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of many women who are barren. They're unable to have children. And we know that this isn't necessarily in response to sin in their lives, right? In fact, most of these barren women are righteous women, many of whom God has actually made great promises to. 
But nevertheless, in these days, barrenness was a, was a place of great shame. Without children, primarily male sons, women had no heirs to pass along their heritage to, and they would have no one to care for them in their advancing years. Barrenness has always been a place of darkness and pain. But even to those today for whom this is an ongoing reality, in these days, it would have been even that much more acutely painful, even shameful. They would have known that in their advancing years, they would have lived in squalor without someone, an heir, a child, to care for them. But God isn't just addressing the barren individuals in Israel. He's addressing Israel as a whole and calling her barren. Beginning in the, ver- the very first chapter of Isaiah, God is basically reading, reading Israel the charges of adultery against her as his own bride. And he is just and right to divorce her. She has, has left him for any and every passing man along the road. She daily worships idols and other gods. She spits in God's face by thinking that her religious acts of duty count as marital fidelity. So in a sense, the barrenness described in chapter 54 is a result of her not being with her husband. And just as God exiled Adam and Eve to the east, away from the land of his presence when they rejected him in Genesis 3, so God has exiled his people to the east to Babylon, away from the land of his presence when they rejected him in the time of the kings. So he says, for a brief moment, I deserted you. We were, for all intents and purposes, divorced. And yet, just as they were descended from Adam and inherited his rebellion against God as father and husband, so have we. While we no longer bow, worship, and sacrifice to idols of gold and silver, I think, We nevertheless are prone to reject him for any and every passing lover along the road. We daily worship the idols of approval and sex, success and the self, whatever we want, whenever we want it, all the while spitting in God's face by thinking our religious acts of duty count for marital fidelity. In Romans 1, Paul describes that all of us have exchanged the right worship of God, the creator, for unrighteous worship of created things. And in Romans 2 and 3, Paul concludes that all of us, just as Israel in these days and every human and every time and every place, are justly condemned by our self-righteous fist-shaking to the heavens. This is bad news indeed. There is nothing but barrenness here for Israel, which is... In Israel's case, in yet another way, even worse than our situation. You see, in Genesis 12, God began making promises to Abraham. One of them, that Abraham would become a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the, sea, and the sand on the seashore. The problem is, of course, if the nation is a barren woman, there are no descendants. Is the covenant in doubt? Has God renounced his promises to Abraham? Will he keep his promises not only to bring descendants, but to deliver a a land where he will dwell with his people and through this nation bless the entire world? Israel is barren. The covenant marriage looks to be in serious trouble. The people are in exile to the east and are far from the living God. The plight is serious, and it's serious for us as well. 
our sinful rejection of God who created us, who loves us. This rejection deserves our just exile away from his presence. Rejection uh, of an infinitely holy and righteous God deserves infinite and just judgment. Do you see your sin this way? Perhaps more just like some bad habits. Do you see, do you think and see of see your sin the way it really is, like the sin that you perhaps committed on your drive to this building here this morning, in impatience, in anger, or as you drank coffee in the foyer 25 minutes ago? Do you see your attempts at self-glorification and making yourself sound really, really important and busy? Do you see that for what it is? The worship and exaltation of the self, a created being, rather than the worship and exaltation of the creator. I'm really good. I'm really good at thinking of examples of sin because I'm quite the sinner myself, the, the chief of sinners. I've done that in the hall, sipping my coffee and making myself sound really important. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Incredible. The good news of the good news is not good news unless the bad news is really bad news. The good news of the gospel will not be glorious unless we first understand just how serious our sinful plight apart from Christ is. I just told you that God desires to save through Christ, but this now gets us to our second point, the mission of God to save them, to save his people. Before we get to the second part of verse one, did you notice that in the first part, in the midst of all that barrenness talk, that God is nevertheless calling Israel to rejoice, to sing? Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. What in the world? Why would they do that? They're exiled away from God. The covenant to Abraham seems to be in doubt. Why should they rejoice? Well, because of the verses that come right before 54, verse 1. They should rejoice in chapter 4 because of chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, where God tells of a coming servant who would come to live and die for his people, suffering in their stead, that despite their sin, he would take God's right judgment upon himself so that his people could be healed. That though they would continue to sin, God would never again give them over and divorce them because of their adultery. Because of the work of this suffering servant that we see described in depth in chapter 53, because of his work, God can say in this next chapter, 54 verse 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. There's a covenant of peace now between God and his bride, between he and his people. Why? Because of Isaiah 53. The shame that hung around them in their barrenness is no more. Verse 4 of chapter 4, or 54, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. Why will they have no, no shame? Why will they not be disgraced? 
because of the suffering servant of chapter 53. Understanding the sure disaster that awaited them and then experiencing the salvation of the suffering servant of God should cause in God's people singing, crying aloud. Look at what God has done. If a few minutes ago you sang these words of the amazing salvation of God and were instead thinking about who might be hearing and noticing your beautiful singing voice or where you're going to go to lunch or the home projects that you have to get done today while we're singing about the salvation of God? Is it possible that you don't fully understand what God has done, what God has saved you from? Christians should be the happiest, most contented, most rejoicing people on the face of the planet. God has saved us from our sin. In the new covenant of Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he has lived the life that we should have lived in right worship of God and died the death that we should have died in our rejecting rebellion of him. And he has made us alive to God through the power of his resurrection. So what if the Rangers make three consecutive errors and are eliminated from the playoffs? The preacher preaches to himself. So what if money is tight? And paying the bills this month might not be feasible. So what if the doctor gives us six months to live? Though the earth may crumble and the mountains fall in the sea, we will not fear. We know that God has already saved us from our greatest problem. We are not Pollyannas who stick our heads in the sand or stick our fingers in our ears to the world's problems. We just experience the world's problems through the lens of the joy in the Lord because of what he has done. He has saved us. How? Through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Why? I don't know. I have no idea why he would save a sinner like me, wretched man that I am, but he has. Actually, I do have an idea. He has saved sinners like you and me to show the power and glory of his saving might. He saves weaklings like you and me to show his great grace and his power, which is the same reason he told Israel that he saved them in Deuteronomy 7. Not that they were the strongest, not that they were the most impressive, but quite the opposite, because they were the weakest and because they were in most need of being saved, such as you and I. And through the saving work of the suffering servant, the promises to Abraham aren't up in the air at all. They're sure to happen. Second part of verse one. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Abraham, descendants who are too many to count, who are spread to the nations. All right. This is, this is really good gospel talk here, Sherman, uh, but I thought this was supposed to be about missions. Well, it is. It's always been the mission of God to save and rescue his people. After he exiled his people away to the east in Genesis 3, he called Abraham back from the east so that he might live and dwell with former idolaters. After he exiled Israel away to the east, he called them back from the east so that he might live and dwell with former idolaters. And through Christ, he is calling idolaters out of exile to repent and believe in the work of Christ. Our God is a missionary God. In the next chapter, in chapter 55, God is calling, he is inviting sinners to find satisfaction in the one thing that will finally and fully satisfy them, himself. This is what he has always been doing, saving sinners to bring glory to himself, spreading his glory broader and deeper, not in just a one-week service project, 
not just in sending a missionary or two across the ocean. Like water in a sponge, God is filling the earth into every nook and cranny, every pore of the sponge of this earth with his glory on earth as it is in heaven. It is the mission of God to save sinners. But now we'll use the rest of our time to think through that is not only the mission of God to save them, but it is the mission of God to save through them. This is indeed a a mission sermon, and more specifically in a moment, a church planting sermon. But I wanted us to think deeply and rightly about the good news of the gospel first. I want us to understand the goodness of God to save us. I want us to burst forth in singing and cry aloud for what he has done. And then, then we can better think of our neighbors and our coworkers as the nooks and crannies of the sponge of this earth that God might be filling with his glory. Our neighbors are not projects like house projects that we've been putting off that we know that we should one day get around to, like that squeaky closet door or the leaky faucet, the thing that we know that isn't quite right, we should get to it eventually, but it isn't that imperative that we get to it right away, but that we begin to think about our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our family, as those who we once were, justly condemned, without hope. They are not projects, but they are those whom we love because God has first loved us. So we serve them. We invite them to dinner, into our home. We basically do all the things that we're already doing with just greater intentionality. So we, when we go to our kids' soccer games or our kids' soccer practice or we have our lunch break with our coworkers, this doesn't become a time for us to catch up on Facebook or Twitter. But it becomes a time to get to know other parents, to get to know other coworkers, ask questions, conversations that turn into dinner invitations, dinner invitations that turn into reading the Bible, Bible reading that turns into explaining the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of Isaiah 53. I've heard someone say, missions is not a way of doing certain things, it is a certain way of doing everything. A certain way of doing everything in every aspect of our life. And not just those who are paid to work at the church. Not just community group leaders. But as Peter describes that all Christians are a kingdom of priests. This means that for every person who is united in Christ, he or she in a sense stands in the gap between God's overwhelming righteous holiness and his just and wrathful judgment. Not in a Catholic sense, where we as a priest stand and actually intercede for those who are unreconciled to God, but in a 2 Corinthians 5 sense, where Paul describes the ministry of reconciliation, which belongs to all of us, that God has reconciled himself to us through Christ, and now he sends us out as agents as ambassadors of that same reconciliation, standing in the gap, pointing to Christ. Now I'm preaching to myself here too because it's easy for me to get drowsy in this, to get lulled to sleep in thinking that the gospel has found its end in me. Piper calls this kind of thinking a cul-de-sac of grace. Grace has come in and saved, but it doesn't go anywhere. 
It stays on this nice, safe, comfortable cul-de-sac where everyone waves at their neighbor and is really friendly. But if this is us, let's wake up. Out of our drowsiness, we are not a cul-de-sac of grace, but a conduit, the means through which God's grace comes to an unbelieving people in this world. This is our mission today, and it is our mission this week. And next week, when Missions Emphasis Week is over, it will be our mission then. For all Christians, for all time. After commanding the people to joyfully respond to the gospel of the suffering servant, and after the command to burst forth in singing, God speaks through Isaiah and says in verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, a tent is a dwelling place, but it's a mobile dwelling place, isn't it? It brings to mind the exodus of the people coming out of slavery and moving toward a fixed and permanent place of security, which would be something that the people would once again be longing for as they sat in slavery here in Babylon. A new exodus to be brought out. But a large tent would certainly remind of the tabernacle of God dwelling with and leading his people as they moved. And I think this is the image that God is describing here. Only as big as the tabernacle was, this is far bigger. This is not a small tent. It's a tent that will cover the nations of the world. And again, the promises to Abraham are here. Descendants who will possess the nations. I don't know if you've been noticing over the past year, two years, three years, but the Lord has been gracious to Desert Springs and we've been growing. This room is getting a little fuller and a little fuller. If we were to continue in on this trajectory two years from now, three years from now, we might need to begin talking about adding a third service. We might even begin using the two words that you would dread the absolute most. Building campaign. But your elders here, and for this I'm so grateful, understand that the church is not a building, that the church is a people. The church is not a place where you go for an hour on Sunday, but it is a people whom God gathers in our context from all over Albuquerque. And then he sends them, he sends you back out into Albuquerque for the rest of the week. If you are lights in the world and we could have like a dark satellite image of Albuquerque and we could just see the lights in Albuquerque where there are Christians, they would be scattered all over town. Perhaps even on this Sunday to Placidus. I don't know. Where's the furthest south we have here? Quite a ways. All over the area. But on Sunday mornings, all the lights in the city converge and they gather in little pockets all over the city for an hour, hour and a half, but then they're spread and scattered back out for the rest of the week. This is the church, not a building, but a people. Now, buildings are good. We're thankful for the one that we have, but we'd rather see more churches planted than just this one grow and grow on itself. Now, why would we say that? 
Tim Keller says, very to the point, the vigorous, continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in a city. Nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. This is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, it's not even controversial. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons why that is. Perhaps one is that new and small churches must grow to survive just out of necessity, or they'll die. And therefore, they can have a greater evangelistic fervor out of necessity. Researchers find that for churches that are 15 years and older, which would be us, on average, three people come to Christ per year for every 100 members. I think that's about right for us. While on average, for churches that are younger than three years, 10 people come to Christ for every 100 members. One denomination found that 80% of its converts came to faith in Christ in churches that were younger than two years. Those stats are good and encouraging. And yeah, those stats are good, you might say, but don't we have enough churches in Albuquerque? I mean, we could plop you down anywhere in our city and point you in any direction that you would choose, and it would take about two minutes, right, for you to see a church building. It seems like we have enough, don't we? Well, I often remember what C.J. Mahaney said when he asked why on earth he would plant a church in Louisville, Kentucky. And he said, Louisville is over-churched, but under-gospeled. Of the 700,000 or so people in Albuquerque, depending on which survey that you find, only 5 to 10% of those are in an evangelical church, which even that is an extremely broad umbrella category, isn't it? 47% of our city doesn't consider themselves to be religious at all. That doesn't include the huge number of those who do claim to be religious, but of whom we would be very concerned that they don't have the gospel of Christ. If we want to see large numbers of those likely greater than 600,000 people in our city come to repentance and faith in Christ, we need more churches, not just bigger churches. Enlarge the place of your tent, God's presence moving to fill the desolate cities through his people. Isaiah envisioned a time where the tent of God's dwelling would expand and enlarge toward all the nations of the world. He envisioned a time where the place of God's dwelling, the tabernacle or temple, would no longer be a fixed and permanent place where people would come and see, but it would be a growing and mobile place where God's people would go and tell. This isn't just our idea in response to a bunch of surveys and some demographic analysis. Church planting has been the way that the kingdom of Christ has expanded since the days of the apostles. At Pentecost, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came and made a dwelling in his people. Just as the Spirit of God in the Old Covenant had hovered above the tabernacle or temple and then would enter into that fixed place, in Acts 2, the Spirit of God hovered over his people and then made his dwelling place in them 
Only these little temples didn't just stay in Jerusalem like God's presence had done for the past thousand years. They scattered God's presence to the nations. They went to Judea and to Samaria. Paul began planting churches in Turkey and Asia Minor and then in Greece. And he wrote to the church at Rome, ultimately going there himself. In the next several centuries, the gospel spread north and west and east and south, all over the Mediterranean world and into Europe. We can debate over whether Constantine actually became a Christian or not, whether his decisions were actually good for Christianity, but just 300 years after the ascension of Christ, Christianity had become the state religion of the Roman Empire. Astounding. In 432, a guy named Patrick brought the gospel to Ireland and began planting churches there. A hundred years after that, missionaries first came to Britain. In the 700s, Irish monks reached Iceland. Matt Chandler says, are you picking up the movement here? Patrick heads to Ireland, and then from Ireland, the Irish head to Iceland. This is what we do. We go. In AD 900, missionaries reached Norway. In 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. In 1554, there are 1,500 converts to Christianity in what is now known as Thailand. In 1743, David Brainerd starts his ministry to the North American natives in the Northeast. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention mission organization is founded. And here's where we're getting to you and I. In 1853, trust me, we're getting to you and I here. In 1853, a 33-year-old man named Hiram Walter Reed was sent by the American Baptist Home Mission Society in New York. And Hiram Walter Reed came down the Santa Fe Trail into what is now, or what was the New Mexico Territory. In what is now known as Old Town, he planted a church called First Baptist Church Albuquerque. 30 years later, that church then built a building downtown at Lead and Broadway. 98 years after that, after the planting of First Baptist Church, that church planted a church called Hoffmantown Baptist Church in 1953. Stay with me here. In 1986, Hoffmantown hired a young man from Texas to be their youth minister. And three years later, that young Texan youth minister planted a small church out of a friend's garage. That man's name was Paul Kemp. And that small church called themselves, sorry, this is good. They called themselves Riverview Fellowship. For those of you who are new around here, Riverview Fellowship changed their name in 1997 to Desert Springs Church. I kind of feel like Donald Sutherland and JFK right now, like revealing, (laughs) pulling back the curtain. (laughs) By the way, by the way, uh, I had lunch with Paul Kemp on Monday in Austin, and he sends his deepest and warmest greetings and affection to you. (laughs) In 2012, remember, remember, we started at Pentecost. Uh, In 2012... (laughs) In 2012, Desert Springs sent out Redemption Church to Rio Rancho, and in 2014 and 15, sent out two of our families to North Africa. Do you see? This is what we do. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. 
Beginning when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them, and then exploding at Pentecost, God's people are always on the move. We may settle for a little while and make deepening and growing relationships, but with God's people, there should always be a culture of goodbye. It was bittersweet when redemption was sent out. It was bittersweet when we sent out our families to North Africa. There were tears. And there will be tears nine months from now when, Lord willing, a group of people leave Desert Springs to see a new people formed and planted. But I'm sure that Timothy's mom and grandma cried when he left to pastor in Ephesus. And I'm sure that Patrick's friends and family cried when he left for Ireland. And I'm sure that Hiram Walter Reed's Baptist Church in New Mexico cried when he left, or in New York, when he left for New Mexico. This is what we do. And we are all here today because of Patrick and Hiram Walter Reed and Paul Kemp. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Next year, some of us will go, some of us will stay, just as only two families left for North Africa, only a few of us will go out with this church plant, but all of us will take our ministry of reconciliation with us, wherever we are. Look around the room. The faces that you see here are the promises to Abraham. The faces that you see here are the stars in the sky, the promises to Abraham fulfilled. While we might be able to count you, which we do each Sunday, uh, (laughs) peeling back the curtain, uh, after we added to your numbers all of those who share Abraham's faith in Albuquerque, and then after we added to that number the number in New Mexico, and in North America, and in Central America, and in South America, and in Europe, and Africa, and Asia, and Australia. Now we're talking a bit too numerous to count. And then add to that number those who have delighted and trusted in Christ across the centuries and millennia. Sand on the seashore. We are the result, but also the means through which God is keeping his promises to save. God is keeping his promises. He is saving sinners through the substitutionary work of the suffering servant. The river of God's grace goes on to the nations and through time, strong and deep and powerful. We just want to jump in and be a small part of God's saving story to humanity. Who knows? Maybe 200 years from now, some church in New Mexico, or even perhaps even more exciting to think about, 200 years from now, a church somewhere in North Africa is beginning to talk about planting churches again. They'll talk about Hiram Walter Reed, and then this North African church will talk about Paul Kemp, and then they'll talk about those first two families that moved to North Africa, and then look what God hath wrought. (laughs) Hmm. May it be so. The church exploding all over North Africa and the Middle East. May it be so. Because of what we are doing in such small efforts 
with our time and with our prayer and our emails to our friends there, with our giving, with our bidding on inconsequential things in the West Wing right after this service. May it be so. God has called us all here this morning to worship him for his glorious grace in Christ. Because we understand our own desperate plight, the gospel causes us to burst forth in singing. And in a few minutes, we'll all leave this building. Some of us will be back this evening for our missions dinner, and then this is an odd week. We've got a Lord's Supper service too. We've got lots of things going around this week. But for most weeks, we're in this building for an hour each week. Great news. God doesn't just use one hour a week to advance his kingdom. He uses his church. He uses you in every other hour of the week. Is there more and more light being added to the locations where you all are scattered? Is there intentionality? Is there forethought? Is there prayer? That God's glory might be spread broader and deeper in Albuquerque and in the world? This is why we love and serve our neighbor. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we plant churches. This is why we send families to unreached people groups to jump into the river of God's grace, to be a part of God's saving mission to the world. Our time should reflect that. Our budgets should reflect that. Our home and our dinner table should reflect that. And our prayer should reflect that. Let's ask for God's help as we pray now. God, we do recognize our adultery, our leaving you, our being prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. But you have covenanted yourself to us, your people, making a covenant of peace where you will no longer desert us or abandon us because of the work of your son Jesus, the suffering servant who has suffered in our place. God, we pray that we might see him as he is, as high and lifted up, now seated at your right hand and upholding the cosmos by the word of his power, by his finger. We are all still here breathing God, we pray that we might love him more, trust him more, and that his gospel might be more transformative in us, but also through us, that we would not be safe and comfortable cul-de-sacs of grace where your grace finds its end in us, but that it might just flow through us to those whom we know, to those whom we don't even know yet. We pray that we might be more bold to just make more friends on our street, at the soccer fields, in hopes that we might be able to share the good news of what you have done for us. God, we pray for our dear, dear friends in North Africa. We pray that as they um, gather together, just two families, four adults and seven or eight kids, they, on Sunday mornings, as it's now Sunday evening, that they, would be, that they would be encouraged by each other, the gathering of the saints in a large city. That's it. That's the gathering of the saints. 
is these two families, we pray that you would add to their number. We pray for their, uh, their friendships. We pray that you would give them more friends. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them diligence, that they might become more proficient in the language, that they might be uh, more effective in sharing the glories of the gospel and what you have done for them. God, we pray. We pray for 200 years from now. We pray for tomorrow, but we pray for 200 years from now that there might be churches all over that country, all over North Africa, and all over the Middle East. That North African and Middle Eastern churches might be sending missionaries to North America one day. God, we pray this for your glory and your great renown. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.